Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Lara May, a clinical pharmacist specializing in functional medicine, as well as a certified yoga teacher and Reiki master. I run a truly integrative health coaching practice, encompassing functional medicine lab testing, yoga and meditation, and a sprinkling of Reiki energy medicine. Join me here on Light Body Radio to break through your health plateau and come into alignment with your natural vitality. Hello and welcome to Light Body Radio. Today I have with me Whitney Morgan, the founder of Morgan Nutrition, creator of the Thyroid Reboot Method, and co-founder of the Functional Health Alliance. Whitney specializes in advanced functional testing and root cause healing for women with thyroid issues. She's helped dozens of women with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism eliminate their unique thyroid triggers and restore their vibrant health. Whitney is a licensed acupuncturist, a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, a primal health coach, and a certified gluten-free health coach. In addition to her private practice, she serves as a clinical advisor and instructor for the Association of Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Practitioners. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this today. I think it affects, you know, a lot of people out there, especially women. And so I think what's going to come forward is a lot of juicy, helpful tidbits uh, that people can, you know, use to move forward in their healing journey, hopefully, is my my hope for the show today. (laughs) Mine too. Yes, let's do it. So tell everyone how you came to be this expert in thyroid health and healing. Yeah, well, really, it was my personal health journey. So in 1996, um, or actually 97, I was diagnosed with my first autoimmune disease, psoriasis. And then uh, several years later, I was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis. So my second autoimmune disease, then Hashimoto's, then celiac disease. So I'm, I'm what I refer to as an autoimmune collector which is actually pretty common among women. Usually uh, most women with Hashimoto's tend to have one or more other autoimmune issues going on. We, we, we cluster together. Uh, but, you know, when I started getting my health challenges, there really wasn't functional medicine practitioners like me. And, and, and actually functional medicine wasn't part of the zeitgeist at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I and I came from a very traditional medical family. So like most people, I walked that traditional medicine route, went to specialists um, who dealt with my specific diagnoses, you know, so a doctor for my bladder issue, doctor for my skin issue, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And um, it was probably about 2004 or five when I had kind of my dark night of the soul where I really hit rock bottom. I I had a, a, a doctor say to me that, you know, what I had, which was the interstitial cystitis he was referring to, wasn't going to kill me, but I was going to die with it. It was going to get worse. And we could try and manage the pain, but there was really nothing that could be done. I should join a support group. And 
for those people who don't know, IC is what it's called um, for short, is extraordinarily painful. It's 24-7 pain in the bladder. Think of the worst urinary tract infection of your life, and it just never goes away. So in that moment, what I was really hearing was that kind of my life was over in a way, right? That that I, I had no quality of life um, in the future. So it was at that point that I just rejected that path of conventional medicine. Not that I knew what else was out there, but I just knew I couldn't accept that prognosis and that I had to do something else. And so I just started jumping down different rabbit holes. Um, and I, I found a naturopathic physician who, and I got really lucky because she was fabulous. She's still my, my um, primary care doc to this day. And I did a lot of alternative treatments, did a lot of research on nutrition and, and naturopathy and holistic health. And then I found acupuncture and started going to a community clinic. And it was the only thing that relieved the pain. That was it. So that really sold me. And I started to learn more about Chinese medicine and found it so fascinating and also so hopeful, right? So comforting. And I fell in love with it. So I decided that I wanted to change my life and um, learn more. So I started acupuncture school. But at the same time I was going through acupuncture school, I was also continuing to do a lot of research in kind of Western alternative health. So when I, um, when I graduated from acupuncture school, I decided I wanted to do a more conventional functional medicine training. So that time it was 2013. So functional medicine was just, you know, coming in um, to, to our space. So, uh, so yeah, I did a training. I got certified in functional diagnostic nutrition and all along the way um, from that dark night moment until 2014, I just applied everything that I was learning to my own health and I got better, you know? And, and so here I am, I, I have all of these technical diagnoses, but they're all in remission and I'm asymptomatic, which is really unheard of for interstitial cystitis and very difficult to achieve for Hashimoto's as well. Um, but of course it wasn't until my final diagnosis of celiac disease that really all of the puzzles started fitting together because it was my celiac disease that was the first autoimmune disease that got triggered. It's just that I'm a silent celiac, so I don't have digestive symptoms when I consume gluten. For me, um, celiac shows up as panic and anxiety. So my a panic disorder, I had developed a panic disorder in my 20s long before I got my psoriasis. So that was really the, the, the starting point of this autoimmune progression. It's just that no one knew to look for celiac disease. There was no reason for me to be tested for it. And really we found it as a fluke. I was being, um, I had an upper GI for other reasons and they found mm -hmm. it, they weren't looking for it. But once I got that diagnosis, I knew enough at that time to know, oh my God, this, this is why all of these other things were happening to me. Mm -hmm. So it was actually the best, the best day for me. It was a happy day when I got my celiac diagnosis. It was like, oh my God, it all makes sense now. So that's really why I'm here because 
it took me, you know, 15 plus years of a long road and a lot of research and a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get to where I am now. And I really don't want other women or anyone to, to go through that lengthy mm -hmm. journey. you right. And so I'm just really passionate about helping uh, women primarily. That's that's kind of my that's who comes to see me, you know, 99 percent of the time. Uh, my clients are women. And I'm just really passionate about helping people identify the root causes of their their various autoimmune issues and to start to reverse engineer so that they can live a symptom-free, vital life. That's, I find that really fascinating. And um, I hear so many parallels uh, between your journey and mine. And I think that's the case probably for so many people out there. Um, which is why I think it's so powerful and so good to actually hear these stories so that we know that we're not alone and we know that there's hope and we know that there's solutions. Yeah. <clears throat> so one, my first question is, uh, do, do you think that the gut is the root for, uh, most Hashimoto's triggers or is it different for everyone? Sure. Well, I think that the gut is always a player and the way that I see autoimmune disease, uh, well, there, there are two ways of looking at it. One is based on the location and the diagnosis, right? So psoriasis is on, is on the skin, RA is in the joints, Hashimoto's is in the thyroid, location, location, location. That's one way to view autoimmune issues. The other way is that the origination point of all of these multiple locations really is more central and foundational. Um, so, and, and that often includes the gut. That's the primary thing. So what usually happens is that there are several dominoes that are lined up and um, like precursors for this autoimmune progression to begin. And then something happens, some final trigger that boom, pushes someone over the edge and then all the dominoes kind of fall and now we're off to the races, right? And for some people, like for me, it was celiac. That was the trigger. It was gluten. For a lot of people, the trigger is gluten. Um, but it can also be other things. It can be mycotoxins. It can be heavy metals are that final thing. Or a really wicked H. pylori infection or overgrowth of some particular opportunistic bacteria that is a known autoimmune trigger. So everyone has their own perfect storm of variables as to how they got to where they are. So really the trick is to start a thorough investigation into multiple areas and throw the suspects up against the wall, right? <laughs> Figure out who did it, you know, and there's usually more than one and then, and then start eliminating those triggers. And when you do that, you're, you're getting rid of all the noise, you know, you're, you're clearing the decks. And then once you eliminate those triggers, now the body can do what it knows how to do, which is heal and maintain balance and homeostasis. Yeah. Yeah. Our body wants to be in a state of homeostasis, yeah. which is balance. And right. I think that's not really talked about enough. We talk about the imbalances so much that we forget that our body is trying like the Dickens to come back into a state of balance. Um, so let's sort of move into also um, when we're talking about triggers and we're talking about figuring out the puzzle, you know, Western medicine is famous for checking a TSH, 
-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times that's it. And even if you come to them complaining of other symptoms, they'll check that first. And if that's quote unquote normal, mm -hmm. then, then that's the end of it. And so I know myself and so many other patients out there really had to be um, their own advocate in terms of finding where, where is the breakdown within, you know, the, the thyroid uh, ca cascade of the different pieces of that hormone pathway. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. So how can someone be told that their thyroid is normal, but still be having all the symptoms? Sure. Well, for starters, the reference range for TSH is very wide. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's true for most standard reference ranges for a lot of things that we're looking at, um, you know, when you go get your annual blood work, right, at your doctor. But that standard reference range is based on the average population, not the optimal healthy population, but just the trends among among the average population. And and it's very wide. So it's kind of like a bell curve. And the the real goal of those reference ranges is to identify the outliers at either end of that bell curve and to identify um you know, maybe a diagnosis or a pathology, you know, something that would require a very specific intervention. It, those, refer, those reference ranges are not intended to reflect or to promote optimal function, optimal health. So if you go to a functional medical doctor who runs the same TSH, let's say all they do is look at TSH, their reference range is going to be much more narrow. So when they see a TSH of 3.2, they're going to go, oh, whoa, wait a minute. But when a conventional doc sees a TSH of 3.2, it's like everything's, everything's normal. You're well within the standard reference range, right? So that's, that's one sticking mm -hmm. point here, right? And then the other is that, you know, you can have, quote unquote, normal TSH for a pretty long time even when you have subclinical thyroid issues, you know, um, and for most of, for most people, that means sluggish thyroid, right? When mm -hmm. your, your T3 and your T4 levels are, are dropping. So you can have symptoms of, of subclinical hypothyroidism and still kind of look normal on paper, right? So TSH doesn't really reflect the actual hormone levels um, it, it's the signal from the pituitary to the thyroid saying, hey, you know, here, here are your orders. Make more, make less. Um, but if you really want to see, you know, get numbers that more closely correlate with how someone feels, you want to measure the actual hormone level. So you want to look at T4 and T3. And T4 is relatively inactive, right? It's T3 actually that that most closely correlates with our signs and symptoms. So if, if doctors just looked at those two things in addition to TSH, they're going to get a much more clear picture. So you could have a normal TSH and then your free T4 and free T3 now look substandard. They're, they're on the low end. Okay, well now the doctor can go, oh, wait a minute, you know, this looks okay, but this over here, I can see why you feel tired. I can see why you have no mm -hmm. libido, right? So um, TSH is just not enough data 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. Um, yes. So any of you out there, again, don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Um, and even, you know, go with a specific request. I would like these things tested for myself, please. Um, you know, and it's okay to be a little pushy <laughs> or very pushy. <laughs> it is. And I usually counsel um, my clients to, you know, really try and build a collaborative relationship with their doctors. And mm -hmm. one of the best ways to do that is um, ask questions and kind of give value statements like, hey, you know, I really want to do everything I can in terms of nutrition and, and lifestyle and exercise to optimize my thyroid function. So I'm doing a lot of things in that area. Okay. Um, would you be willing to use functional optimal reference ranges for to evaluate my thyroid instead of the standard because I'm really striving for optimal function. Are you willing to use those reference ranges? You can ask questions like, hey, do you ever look at, you know, free T4 and free T3 in addition to TSH? If not, are you open to doing that for me? Are you open to ordering reverse T3 if I want to see it? Ask questions, you know, mm -hmm. rather than say, this is what I want you to do. Because, I mean, come on, we're human. You know, someone just says, this is what I want you to do. The natural thing is to resist. Mm -hmm. But if you go into the doctor's office really asking, hey, will you partner with me? Will you collaborate with me? I want you on my team, right? Can we be on the same page or compromise? Mm -hmm. Can we find a compromise place? Yeah, yeah I love that. That's fantastic advice. Um, so let's say now let's move forward. Uh, we've excuse me, we've established that there might be some medication needs in the mix to help balance the thyroid function. Um, but maybe now I'm not, I'm still not feeling better. So what from there? Yeah, with medication, it, it can get a little confusing because um, there's different types of medication. Mm -hmm. There's different qualities of, med of medication. And some women feel better on one medication, some feel better on another, you know, so there, there's also that bio-individuality as to like what medication is, is best for you. So there's always a little bit of experimentation and hit and miss to find the right, you know, the perfect thing for you. Um, but generally speaking, when clients come to me and they tell me they're medicated, usually most of the time that means they're taking Synthroid or Levothyroxine uh, which is a T4 only medication, and they haven't noticed any change in their symptoms. They're still tired. They're, they can't lose weight. You know, they're anxious. They can't sleep. All these things. Um, they're like, why don't I feel better? Um, well, maybe T4 really isn't appropriate for you. Maybe maybe you need T4 and T3. Um, maybe you're not converting enough of that T4 into T3, maybe you've got some nutrient deficiencies or other things getting in the way of your conversion. And so we need to support that a little bit. Or maybe there are some ingredients in your medication that actually are kind of triggering your symptoms anyway, like gluten or corn, right? Mm -hmm. So it takes a little bit of investigation. And again, that's why if you establish from the get-go a collaborative relationship, you can ask questions like, do any of your patients, do you ever prescribe glandulars 
like WP thyroid or armor or nature throid mm -hmm. um, as alternatives. You know, what, what basically what's your menu of thyroid medications that, that you you're comfortable prescribing? Another question to ask is, um, do you ever work with compounding pharmacies? If I needed to have my medication compounded because I want to avoid corn or a wheat derived ingredient, can I do that with you? You know, so the more options you know are on the table, now you can start to experiment. And for me, the ultimate goal is, you know, it'd be great to get off the medication, of course. And some, and some people can get off the medication. Uh, but I think the ultimate goal is to be on the lowest dose possible to feel good and the most the cleanest and best medication for you that allows you to leverage that medication to its full potential yes so from there i love this i feel like we're just like moving along in this scenario <laughs> which i think is very realistic for a lot of people out there so um so since you brought up gluten and corn yeah my first question is um, do you recommend food sensitivity testing for people to find out if they are sensitive, if they're not symptom like, you know, GI symptomatic? And then my next question from there is, is the tiny amount that's in the medication enough to trigger? Mm -hmm. Okay, so yes, I recommend food sensitivity testing. Um, but I will say that not all food sensitivity tests are created equal. True. So um, I, I run very specific types of tests on all my clients and, and I don't just recommend them. If someone works with me, it's like there's a certain battery of tests that are non-negotiable. We will run certain food sensitivity tests mm -hmm. or I can't work with you, right? Because right. like, I need that data. I'm a data-driven practitioner. So, um, so yes, food sensitivity testing is critical because sometimes the only symptom you have that a food is not good for you is your thyroid symptoms, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you might have absolutely zero GI response, right? Or if you do have a response, it could be three or four days later and mixed in with all these other things and, and you can't correlate, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's really important. And um, your second question, is that dose enough? Or was the so that tiny, me, yeah, amount. that tiny amount in the meds is enough to trigger? It certainly can be. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the dose makes the poison. It depends on the mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. right? Everyone's threshold is different. But I can tell you from clinical experience that I have had clients that when they switch from, say, armor thyroid to a almost identical glandular product that does not have corn in it, they have a completely different reaction to their medication. So they feel much better. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it depends on the person, but if you are sensitive to corn or sensitive um, to gluten and you're taking something every day, you're kind of micro dosing um, right. corn and gluten. Yeah. That, that, that's a problem. Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly with gluten, because gluten sets off an inflammatory cascade that can last for months. So if you're microdosing every day, you're never not inflamed. Ever, right. Right. 
Yeah. So let's talk about gluten specifically, um, you know, because I remember at the beginning of my healing journey, uh, gluten was one of the first things I eliminated. And at that time, still, it was still sort of a fad. It was like this thing that you did and it was sort of considered more of like a vanity thing than anything. Well, and people are like, well, if you're not celiac, then what's the point? Right. Um, So, uh, so there, there is, and now we know that there is this spectrum of sensitivity, which still causes inflammation versus a full blown, you know, celiac, which, you know, is, it can be a much different, um, uh, I guess, presentation for lack of a better way to say it. So, um, so is it necessarily for everyone regardless, or this is why we test, I would think? Yeah, well, there are several different ways I can answer that. Um, <laughs> but w- what the research tells us is that about a third of the population are non-celiac gluten sensitive. That's one out of three people. So, you know, do the math. Right? Yeah, How lucky you feel. Right? It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, anyone with an autoimmune disease, anyone with a chronic health issue, should absolutely be screened for gluten sensitivity, wheat sensitivity. And the test that I use includes um, two different panels that also screen for celiac disease. So it's very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Right? So whether someone is full-blown celiac on their way to being celiac, or maybe they have absolutely no predisposition for celiac disease, but they're wicked gluten and wheat sensitive, this test is really going to catch it, right? 99.9% of the time. Um, So does everyone need to go gluten-free? Okay. So let's say, let's say you run the tests you, you run this test through me, you know, this, this test that I really like, mm-hmm. and you come up clean, completely unre- unreactive. Well, you're a unicorn for start because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never, I've never worked with someone who has an autoimmune disease so far that does not have a gluten or a wheat sensitivity ever. That's a lot of people. Now, if you're in the general population and screening everyone with this lab test, you're going to have different results than that, right? Different Mm -hmm. averages. But in the autoimmune world, if you are still eating gluten, chances are you are accelerating your autoimmune disease because of that dietary choice. So the best thing you can do is to eliminate it completely. And, you know, there's a lot of people like you, you mentioned it, you know, well, you're not celiac. So, right. Like, like this, real seriousness, like celiac disease is legitimate Mm -hmm. and everything else is kind of this bad thing or whatever is a little more squishy and loosey goosey, but it's really not. I mean, I think if you have celiac disease, um, you are endowed with more legitimacy by everybody else, right? Everyone takes you more seriously, but having non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not less serious than celiac disease in my mind, because it can lead to some pretty bad autoimmune diseases, pretty scary autoimmune issues like type one diabetes or, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or Hashimoto's or other things. Right. So it's not less serious. It's just different. Yeah. And let me just say also too, in case 
people are un unaware because I, there has been some reclassification of what is considered um, autoimmune, like IBS, IBD. What when I was first diagnosed was not considered an autoimmune right. disorder, but now it is. Right. And with with that, it's interesting. Like if you, I've noticed because um, I've applied for some like per diem pharmacist positions at different places, and now within that application. They want to know if you consider yourself uh, a person with a disability and they give you a list of options. And if you have migraines, you're considered disabled. If you have IBD or IBS, you're considered disabled. Like so many of these things now that were never considered to be quote unquote that serious or severe now are even being recognized as disabilities. Yeah. So I, I think we really need to start taking this a lot more seriously. And really, you know, it's it's not that difficult anymore, I don't think, to, you know, live without gluten. There are so many choices and so many avenues, um, you know, beyond just that, I think, um, emotional attachment to glutinous products. And that's just, you know, something we tell ourselves. But <laughs> I think yeah. if we start to care more about feeling good and being healthy and, and be, you know, feeling as best as we possibly can and functioning at our optimal level, like you said earlier, mm -hmm. then it becomes sort of like, well, if I care about being completely optimized, then this is sort of becomes non-negotiable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, for, for people who seek out the services of, of functional practitioners, they're already there, right? I mean, they, they want to make the changes. They want to embrace a different life so that they can, you know, get on a different path and, and heal. Um, and the folks that aren't there yet tend to remain in the conventional medicine world, right? So, um, the, the bridge between those two things is I think where, where we often need to focus. It's like mm -hmm. building a bridge between those two worlds. Um, because you're right. I mean, there's there's a huge emotional and social connection to gluten in particular. It's almost, um, I don't know, al almost religious in a way. You know, I mean, it has this, this it, it evokes so much in us as a culture that the idea of giving that up is, can be very isolating for a lot of people and threaten their way of life, threaten their relationships and, and you know, their experience being in family and, and showing and giving love. And, you know, there's so much wrapped up with that, that mm -hmm. um, you need to work through that as well as just the logistics of eliminating it. That's actually easy, right? It's it's the psycho emotional um, elimination that, that's mm -hmm. really tough for a lot of people. Yeah, that's so true. So true. So since we're on the food um, end of the conversation, let's talk a little bit about um, keto, low carb, intermittent fasting. How do all of those affect uh, our thyroid? Yeah. Well. Um, first thing to think about is that if you have a thyroid issue, now I'm talking about Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, not talking about hyper and graves. That's small percentage of the population and it's a different, different animal. Okay. okay. Let me interrupt you. I want to ask yeah. you one more question about that. Then. Sure. So is, 
it, just because you're hypothyroid does not necessarily mean you have Hashimoto's, correct? Hmm. It's a good hmm. question because the research is <laughs> showing us that about 90 to 95% of people with hypothyroidism actually have Hashimoto's. So I know there's a an antibody test. Yep. Do you use that test as like the definitive yes or no? No, because okay. um, I mean, if you get lucky and and you get a test result where, oh, you know, your TPO antibodies are 350. Okay, a doctor's going to diagnose you with Hashimoto's most likely. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of women have Hashimoto's. Um, a lot of people have Hashimoto's and will never get a, a, a legitimate you know, clear elevation of thyroid antibodies. Um, now, a lot of times that's because it's, it's just not something that is tested very often, mm -hmm. right? Now, every time I look at my thyroid or every time I run a thyroid lab on a client, I'm always checking antibodies. I, I never leave that off of a thyroid lab because mm -hmm. you don't know when you're going to catch it, right? Our immune system, you can you can have an autoimmune disease and you can have a crash in antibody production where you're not going to register as elevated antibodies. Or you can have autoimmune issues and because you've done a lot of healing, your antibodies can normalize. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the autoimmune disease. Doesn't mean you can go back to life as, as you used to live it, right? Otherwise, you're going to be right back in the same place. Um, but a lack of elevated antibodies does not rule out Hashimoto's. Okay. That way. okay. Perfect. I'm, okay. I'm glad that was said. Okay. Now we can move forward with the, the low carb conversation. Okay. okay. <laughs> so when you have Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, you have metabolic injury, right? So mm -hmm. making dietary changes is going to look different for everybody in terms of what they can handle. And it depends on what your starting point is. If someone's starting from your typical sad American diet, um, super high carb, lots of sugar, lots of processed foods, probably not a good idea to go hardcore keto. Probably not. It's it's probably going to really hurt your metabolism. It's going it, your thyroid's going to crash a little bit. It's probably not a good idea to start intermittent fasting either, right? Because not only are you going to feel miserable, but everyone you live with is is going to be miserable too. Right. So you do need to slowly train your body to become more metabolic, more metabolically resilient and flexible. So depending on your starting point, you I look at it this way. Eliminate those things that, you know, are triggering um, disease or imbalance or mm -hmm. you know, adverse health impacts. Okay. So usually that's gluten, dairy, soy, corn, refined sugar, alcohol. Those are like the big six. And then whatever else we find in the data, when you run the test, you know, we're going to get rid of all that stuff. And then once you do that and you kind of normalize and, and you, and you know, you get your sea legs on that. Okay. Well now we can start shifting you into a lower carb diet where we're, we are removing now other grains and legumes and things and, and getting that, um, getting more control over blood sugar stabilization, right. By, by eliminating those things. Yeah. And then once, once you're comfortable there, now you can start intermittent fasting just by, you know, shifting your breakfast back a few hours, maybe two hours, you know, start to give your body these gentle cues. Eventually 
most people, when they go low carb or when they go paleo or primo, they will eventually start to intermittent fast anyway, without mm -hmm. even making a conscious choice to do it because they become fat adaptive. They become metabolically flexible. Their body goes, oh, no glucose. Okay. We're just going to go burn these fat stores that we're carrying around in our body because we can turn that into ATP as well. So we're good to go. Right. So um, it's all about knowing where you're starting from and not trying to go from zero to 100 overnight where you're going to feel like crap and your thyroid's going to take a hit. So either you need to develop a plan and be very prudent about it and very strategic about it, or you need to work with someone who's experienced and and can kind of walk you through, you know, all of these changes to get you where you ultimately should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I just want to, you know, throw out a cautionary tale too, that um, I've had clients and also been through this myself where, you know, um, moving through different changes, like starting with paleo and then moving into intermittent fasting and then adding a keto on to that. Mm -hmm. And depending on how strict you are and how orthodox you are about that keto, you can, that can actually be a trigger for autoimmune as well, especially in women. Yeah. Um, men have a little bit more forgiveness with this, I think. Um, but because of our cyclical hormone, you know, um, progression, that's natural for hopefully all of us women are, you know, depending on what stage of life we're in, are still having the cycle of hormones, mm -hmm. you know, keto is just super rough on that hormone balance. And it can be really stressful. So yeah. if you're really, really dedicated and really, really think you have to have it in your life, my suggestion is you cycle in and out. Yeah. So you give yourself that, I would you know, agree. the break. Yeah. I would agree um, with that. And um, I don't even really like the the label keto like oh i'm keto because it's like yeah you know i'd, I'd rather i'd rather you have the mindset of i'm comfortable when my body's in a state of nutritional ketosis mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you have to be in that state all the time and so when, when the folks say i'm keto usually that means I'm keto 100%, 100% of the time. So I'm always in the state of nutritional ketosis. And you're right. That's not really a great place to live for a lot of people all the time. You do need to kind of shift in and out, in and out, in and out. Yeah. Um, and when you're paleo or primal, your body actually does that anyway. It, it will shift into, into nutritional ketosis and it'll shift back out. It'll go back and forth, back and forth. Uh, now, for folks uh, who are dealing with uh, certain disorders, uh, particularly neurological stuff, sometimes, yeah, keto, spending more and more time in keto is better for their outcomes long term, right? But again, this, this is like a very bio-individual mm -hmm. scenario. For right. sure. Yeah. And then you you mentioned this a little bit in passing, but I want to come back to it um, in terms of the progression from like, let's say, starting point from standard American through these different uh, styles of eating. Ultimately, what you ended up with when you said, you know, we want to keep an eye and really start to manage blood sugar. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, so there is a method behind the madness. There's a reason why we eventually still want to get to paleo or some something that's more um, low carb ish. Yeah. Um, and that is because elevated blood sugar drives inflammation. And that's so, right. you know, whether you're pre-diabetic, diabetic or neither at the moment, if And this is, you know, as we get older too, our body just doesn't, you know, um, handle things as well, you know, and maybe this is just because we've, we're only now really starting to look at the function and the process of aging. And so one could argue that if we're diligent about these things earlier in life, maybe the aging process looks completely different. Maybe we actually don't experience aches and pains and the stiffness <laughs> and the brain fog and what, you know, all those things. So yep. um, I would just, I just wanted to point out that there is a, a, a method and an intention with this, the low carb, once you're at a place where your body can handle it. And it right. is to provide further support and balance mm-hmm. and allowing your body to, um, you know, handle the inflammation on its own without more insult, I think. Probably the best Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And even if you don't have autoimmune issues or chronic health issues, a lower carb diet will improve longevity and will will result in a more vital functional life. You know, I mean that's that's what that's just what the research tells us, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like the person who makes the least amount of insulin wins. Right. Right. We want insulin. Of course we do. We and and we need, you know, that glucose insulin function in our body. It's not a bad thing. It's just that we can't be on a glucose insulin roller coaster every day. And that's what the modern American diet does. It keeps us on this glucose insulin roller coaster. And it's very inflammatory. And I would say and the healthy healthy fats also like we're, you know, within the standard American, we're depriving ourselves of the healthy fats and going way too overboard on the really inflammatory fats. And so I think, again, uh, you know, just something to keep in mind, if this is all new to you, there's, you know, um, lots of other podcasts and resources out there, but the difference between the fats and, you know, they our body does need fat. Like we need omegas. We need, um, we actually even need a little omega six, but within the standard yeah. American diet, we get way too much of the sixes, mm-hmm. but they're very anti-inflammatory. If you bring them in and the right ratios with your other macros, meaning your protein and your carbs. So it's a, yeah. it's a dance and, um, you know, just throwing someone on a statin to bring down their cholesterol without really looking at, you know, okay, well, is this an oxidized LDL? You know, what are they eating? Um, you know, it's, and even like telling someone to go completely plant-based, I think yeah. even that can be um, detrimental to some, because again, there are some essential nutrients that are really only found in meat. So, right. um, so anyway, just things to keep in mind. Um you know, I'm not much one for dogma or orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And, and I love your approach to that. It's, you know, very um, bio individual, and, and unique and personalized and precision based medicine is what I, I like to think about it as. 
Yeah, that's that's a nice phrase, precision based. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you know, we we've we've been saying paleo and primal, and it, it's not like there's this one diet that's like the perfect fit for everybody. Right. I think that um, the reason why I point people towards paleo or primal is because I think psychologically it's just easier to embrace something rather than have this list of things that you have to restrict and eliminate, mm -hmm. right? So there's so many great resources for paleo and primal, great recipes. I mean, just great communities. I mean, supportive communities and podcasts and all kinds of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, like a, it's like a little family in a way. Um, so you can find your tribe over there, right? Um, and you can pretty much find a resource for any kind of food or recipe that you want, you know, any sort of replacement for things that you might mm -hmm. be missing, um, rather than kind of be a slave to, to this big list of things you have to avoid. Right. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's that it's just a, it's just a different frame of mind. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do also want to come back to what you were talking about keto and another reason why keto can sometimes, um, be detrimental is because when if people go shift to a keto diet and they have a lot of bacterial dysbiosis um particular particularly bacteria that are producing um specific endotoxins those toxins will actually hitch a ride on the fat and go through the gut lining and get into the bloodstream and those are called lipopolysaccharides and they are autoimmune triggers for sure. And they do a lot of other stuff, super inflammatory, right? We don't want lipopolysaccharides circling in abundance in our bloodstream. But people going keto have this huge increase in fat. Mm -hmm. And if they haven't done gut work and they haven't prepared for that shift into keto, now all of those toxins just go whoop, right out of the gut and into the bloodstream. And you can feel pretty crappy. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because it, it is really important. Like it's it's important for us to just be real about all of the toxins that we're exposed to on a daily basis, even if we're trying to live as cleanly as possible. Yeah. But especially at the beginning of our journey for most of us, and I was there too, you know, our just the toxic burden that our that our body carries is probably hard for us to really comprehend. And so if we and if we're making these drastic changes, like you said, it can you're going to make the journey itself a lot harder instead of making small changes, you know, slowly but surely along the way, give your body that chance to acclimate to help you detox, to help you, you know, um make shifts and changes because it it doesn't have to be um, striking and shocking to the body and to yeah. which will end up being your brain too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think just to set yourself up for success, yeah, it's important to think about it as a stepwise gradual journey. It really is a journey. So with that being said, tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. Well, a couple of different places. Um, I'm at Whitney Morgan Nutrition across, you know, all social media, YouTube. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube. My website is Whitney Morgan Nutrition. So for those folks who are looking for some one-on-one -on -one private coaching, interested in data-driven coaching process and doing the labs necessary to identify those root triggers and eliminate them, 
that would be the space to find me. Um, but a colleague of mine and I, we also um, founded the Functional Health Alliance and specifically for people who can't afford to work with folks like us. You know, it's, it's just too, it's a big ticket item. It just is. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. And mm -hmm. the lab tests aren't cheap and they're not covered by insurance. So if, if that's more, you know, what resonates with you, if you have those financial limitations, then going to the Functional Health Alliance, that's our website. Um, and we're on Instagram as the Functional Health Alliance and Facebook. You can find us there. We have a private Facebook community. Anyone can join. And what we do in the Alliance is we do monthly Q&As. We um, have free coaches office hours where we open up our time, these little 15-minute time slots where you can get some private one-on-one -on -one support with myself and with my colleague, Paula Reed. And um, we also have some free and, and, and also low-cost, affordable health courses that you can take. We run different free challenges, and we're in this Facebook group every day answering questions, um, providing some educational content. So it's a place to get the support, the consistent support of functional medicine health coaches like us and to get evidence-based support without, you know, just kind of like going into the wild west and letting Google be your coach or, mm -hmm. you know, Instagram influencers or whatever. Right. right. Um, so that's the Functional Health Alliance. And so um, I hope that people will come join us over there too. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. It's been a real pleasure. And I feel like we could probably go on talking for another hour or so. so. <laughs> I think we could do like super fast. <laughs> yeah, um, there is so much more that, you know, yeah. we could delve into in the future. So um, everyone stay tuned. We, you know, we might have a part two coming sometime soon. Hey, so. that would be great. Well, thanks for having me so much. It was, it was a great time. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Make sure you check out uh, the functional health alliance.com and reboot with Whitney and Paula.com. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye.